You're listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation podcast. On Tuesday, April 17th, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a seminar featuring Kishore Mabubani, Ash Center Senior Visiting Scholar, Professor in the Practice of Public Policy at Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy, and author of the forthcoming book, Has the West Lost It? Anthony Sage, Ash Center Director, Daewoo Professor of International Affairs, moderated. I'm not going to spend too long introducing uh, Kishore because obviously we're here today to hear from Kishore. Um, but he does fit what we see as the ideal profile uh, for people that we love to have here at the Kennedy School. Uh, he spent over 30 years as a public servant in Singapore, uh, serving many distinguished uh, positions, including as permanent secretary at the Foreign Ministry and also as uh, Singapore's ambassador uh, to the UN and was president of the UN Security Council. And if you ever have any time to talk to Kishore about his experiences in that role and the shenanigans that go on between the great powers, I highly recommend uh, you uh, hearing from that. Then, of course, uh, we, he served as dean of the Lee Kuan Yew School of Public Policy in 2004-2017. And we're very lucky uh, that he's spending some time with us. Um, and today... We'll talk about his latest publication. As you know, he uh, publishes things with not very provocative titles, such as uh, Canadians Think. And the subject of today's talk, of course, is Has the West Lost It? So please, Kishore. Uh, Thank you. Thank you very much, Tony, for that introduction. It's such a pleasure uh, to be here uh, back in the uh, Harvard Kennedy School. And I'm actually on a nine-month uh, sabbatical now, uh, starting in from 1st of February, and I'm glad I could spend uh, five or six weeks here uh, at the Ash Centre. But while I'm here also, uh, I was actually in London last week for the actual, this, since this book was published in London, I was, it was launched in London exactly a week ago today on uh, April 10th, and a Dutch edition was launched on last Friday, and so now hopefully this is the third launch of this book, uh, Has the West uh, Lost It? Now, as you know, this is a question. Uh, and uh, normally what I'm supposed to do is keep you all in suspense and, and so that you at the end of my 20 minutes you'll find out whether the answer is yes or no. But I won't keep you in suspense. I'll give you the answer right away. <laughs> and the answer is no. Or rather more accurately, not yet. <laughs> <laughs> but my big fear is that the West actually uh, could lose it uh, if it carries on uh, on autopilot. So as a friend of mine who read this book, said, Kishore, this is your love letter to the West to say, hey, wake up, the world's changing, and you've got to adapt uh, also. So what I propose to do uh, in about 20 minutes or so is uh, uh, divide my remarks into three parts. In the first part, uh, I'll try to answer the question, why does the West matter? Because, you know, at the end of the day, the West makes up only 12% of the world's population. 88% live outside. So why should we give special attention uh, to the West? Second part, I'll address the question, what actually has the West been doing recently? And, of course, I'll talk about some mistakes that the West has made. And finally, I hope to end with a prescription uh, uh, for the West. And that, that's what I'll try to do. 
So let me let me begin by talking about uh, why why the West matters. And from from my point of view, the reason why the West matters so much is because the West has actually been by far uh, the most successful civilization ever in human history. And if the West actually hadn't made its huge breakthroughs, you know, in the Renaissance and the Enlightenment and the Industrial Revolution, the human condition would not have improved. In fact, one of the key arguments of this book, and this is why some people say it's a love letter to the West, is that the rest of the world's population should send the West a big thank you note because thanks to the breakthroughs made by the West, the world is today a much, much better place. And I know people are so used to being pessimistic. Uh, when you tell them you're on the verge of utopia, they don't believe it. So uh, hopefully some data will help to convince you in a few areas, okay? Now let's take the most, uh, one of the most important and most difficult areas of human affairs, which is war and peace. And I suspect many of you secretly believe that we live in violent times. Actually, the truth is the exact opposite. And here I'm quoting a professor here from Harvard who I actually met a few weeks ago, Steven Pinker. And he says, and I quote, today we are probably living in the most peaceful moment of our species' time on Earth. Global violence has fallen steadily since the middle of the 20th century. According to the Human Security Brief 2006, the number of battle deaths in interstate wars has declined from more than 65,000 per year in the 1950s to less than 2,000 per year in this decade. So if you look at it historically, the number of people dying in interstate conflicts has just plummeted. Let's take another area. Another area we've been trying to improve the human condition is in trying to eliminate absolute poverty. And for a long time, it seemed like a mission impossible, couldn't be done. And what most people are not aware of is that we've been hugely successful in the battle uh, uh, against absolute poverty. And let me just again, once again, give you data. In 1950, which is not so long ago, that was two years after I was born, uh, three quarters of the world were living in extreme poverty. In 1981, it was still 44%. But by 2016, the research suggests that the share in extreme poverty has fallen to below 10%. From 75% of the world's population to less than 10% in my lifetime. That's future historians will look at our uh, generation and say, what a remarkable generation this was. They've done something absolutely impossible almost, right? Now this is true in areas after areas. Let me just give you, let me just give one more example, okay? The previous statistics I quoted were from Oxford's Max Rosa. This one is from Johann Nobel of the Cato Institute. If someone, he says, if someone had told you in 1990, at the end of the Cold War, that over the next 25 years, world hunger would decline by 40%, child mortality would halve, 
and extreme poverty would fall by three quarters, you would have told them they were a naive fool. But the fools were right. This is truly what has happened. So by in indicator after indicator, the human condition has never been better. And a lot of this, I mean, I, of course I discuss this in the book, is through what I call the spread of Western reasoning in all parts of the world. So like, for example, the spread of Western science and technology, the spread of Western clinics, uh, the spread of Western methods of hygiene, mothers washing their hands, infant mortality declines. It's amazing. So the West actually has done an enormous amount of good for the world. And indeed, a future historian looking at our time would have said, this should be a moment of great celebration for the West. But as you know, the West is now in a deep funk. And the question, therefore, is, why is the West not celebrating? And here, my view, and this is the second part of my remarks, is that the West actually, at this time, while the world was making major improvements, the West made some serious strategic mistakes. The first strategic mistake it made was at the end of the Cold War, again in 1999-1990. And at that time, as you know, and I happen actually have spent a year in Harvard, 91 and June, the West was in a very triumphalist mood. And the feeling was that, hey, we made it. We defeated the Soviet Union without firing a shot. We have arrived. We can just coast from now on. And if you know, there was a very famous essay by Francis Fukuyama called The End of History. It wasn't his intention, obviously, but his, the impact of his essay was to make the West feel very complacent. And as I say rather cruelly in this book, his essay caused a lot of brain damage to the West because it put the West to sleep at precisely the historical moment when China and India were waking up. And why is uh, the waking up of China and India very important? Because from the year 1 to the year 1820, the two largest economies of the world were always those of China and India. So it's only in the last 200 years that Europe took off and North America took off. But the past 200 years of world history have been a major historical aberration. It was inevitable natural for China and India to come back. But at the time when they decide to wake up, is the time when the West went to sleep. And just to give you an indication of how fast this has happened, uh, in 1980, in purchasing power parity terms, the United States' share of the global GNP was 25%. China's share was 2.2%, less than 10% of the United States. But by 2016, 2017, China's share had become larger. So it is in the, precisely in this period that you've seen big changes happen. The second strategic mistake that the West made was in the year 2001. So what happened in 2001? Of course, if you ask most people in the West, especially if you ask Americans, what happened in 2001? The answer is obvious. 9-11 happened in 2001. And actually, I was in Manhattan when 9-11 happened, so I could 
see the shock that they created. But the impact of that attack was that suddenly the United States, which was once thinking of paying attention to China, got distracted by wars in the Islamic world, and then he didn't notice that something much more significant happened in 2001. And the event that was much more significant was China's entry into WTO. And it was inevitable that when China entered WTO, he suddenly injected maybe 800 million new workers into the global capitalist system. There would be created destruction. Jobs would be lost. Jobs were lost. In fact, an economist called I think David Porter has documented how many jobs have been lost because of China's entry in the global system. And of course, the West didn't pay attention. And because it didn't pay attention, Trump happened 16 years later. So that's, that's a consequence of not paying attention to major strategic developments. That's the second tragic mistake. The third tragic mistake that the West made, and this is something that I'm still puzzled by, and I still don't understand, is why the West, which used to have sort of big strategic thinkers looking at the world as a whole and trying to piece together the right strategic approaches to take and manage the world, suddenly lost its capacity for global strategic thinkers, thinking. And I you know, for example, you have people like George Cannon, you have people like Henry Kissinger, you have people like Zbigniew Brzezinski looking at the big picture, trying to chart the correct course for the West to adapt. Instead, the West stopped thinking strategically. And as a result of that, as I document in this book, lots of strategic mistakes were made. And to give you one example, which I discussed at some length in the book, as you know, at the end of the Cold War, the United States was very powerful. It could act unilaterally, do what it wanted. And then it began to expand NATO into Eastern Europe, uh, and without thinking through what the consequences might be as a result. And many of the problems that you then see in the first decade of the 21st century are a result of the lack of strategic thinking on the part of the West at a time when the world was changing. And as a result of that, you find today, for example, if you look at the mood of the most of the populations of Western countries, you find that the pessimism uh, trumps optimism, and there's a sense of foreboding about the future rather than a sense of hopefulness for the future, which is what the West uh, should be feeling uh, today. So the question, the final question, therefore, I hope to address is, what is to be done? Can we actually do something to improve the situation? And in my view, and the reason why I've published this book now, at this point in time, is to say yes. If the West changes course, it can have a better situation for itself, and frankly, a better outcome for the world also. So I, what I propose in this book is what I call a new 3M strategy uh, for the West. And 3M doesn't stand for the Minnesota Mining Company. <laughs> 3M's, uh, 3M words beginning with M. The first M is minimalist. And here, one of the critical points I want to leave with you is that the West actually, because it became so much more powerful than the rest of the world, 
had got into a habit of intervening in the affairs of other countries. It was like an auto-reflex. And of course, it could do that with great abandon in the 19th century. And it's not a secret that uh, basically Europe and America virtually colonized every country in the world, and uh, even India, uh, my, my ancestors in India, all 300 million of them were, could be ruled by 100,000 Englishmen effortlessly for over 100 years. That showed you how powerful the West was in the 19th century. Even China, as you know, was humiliated uh, time and again, uh, the Opium War in 1842, and then after the Boxer Rebellion, Beijing was sacked, and uh, looting of the Summer Palace. You could do whatever you wanted. So that became a kind of ingrained habit of the West. But one of the biggest mistakes that the West is making in the 21st century <coughs> is that it's carrying on with its 19th century impulses in the 21st century when the rest of the world has woken up and is not going to accept Western intervention as easily or as complacently as it did in the past. So even though the time has come for the West to make a major turn to adjust to the significant change in human history, it hasn't happened. And sadly, one of the big mistakes that the United States made was that at a time when you needed a very thoughtful American president who could actually have a sophisticated, nuanced view of the world, uh, America elected Donald Trump, who clearly doesn't understand the world, who seems to think that the United States can still keep on behaving unilaterally and get away with it but it is actually conceivable that the rest, will say, the rest of the world is going to say, thank you very much. We're going to do what we have to do. So, therefore, I advocate a kind of a minimalist strategy by the West to pay attention, to work, work cooperatively, cooperatively with the rest of the world, and there can be new partnerships. And so that leads me to my second M. The second M, the word is multilateral. And here, again, I can tell you that a future historian looking at our times can see what is the most obvious change in the human condition. Uh, the most obvious change in the human condition is that the world has shrunk dramatically. We live in a small, interconnected, interdependent world. As Kofi Annan once said, we live in a small global village. And if you live in a small global village, you need to have global village councils. And you need to have stronger global village councils rather than weaker global village councils. But it is precisely at this moment in history when the demand for global governance is rising that the supply is diminishing. And unfortunately, if you look at institution after institution, that in one way or another, all, and many of these global multilateral institutions, I must emphasize, were gifts from the West to the world. At the end of the World War II, whether it's United Nations, IMF, World Bank, WTO, all of them, right? 
And at a time when we should be strengthening them, we're actually weakening them. And sadly, one of the best organizations that has actually done an enormous amount of good for the world and actually explains why, as I said in the part, one of my remarks, the human condition has never been better, and that is the World Trade Organization. It is being weakened right now as in front of our eyes when we should be doing the exact opposite. So this, again, is something that future historians will scratch their heads or her, his or her head and say, why? Isn't it obvious that at this point in history you should be strengthening this organization? Well, we are doing the exact opposite. Therefore, I say, try to strengthen multilateral organizations rather than weaken them. But my third M is probably going to be the most controversial M. Uh, it's a word, unfortunately, that can only be used with disapproval in polite Western discourse, and that word is Machiavellian. I actually advocate that the West should become more Machiavellian as it deals with the world. Now, Machiavelli, as you know, uh, is a very controversial figure. I think the political scientist Leo Strauss described him as a figure of evil. But I can tell you as someone, I, I actually studied philosophy, and when I was doing a course in Dalhousie University, uh, I actually read an essay a long time ago written by the British liberal philosopher Sir Isaiah Berlin on Machiavelli, published in the New York Review of Books. So if you have a chance, read that essay. Because he points out that what Machiavelli's goals were was to promote that's an Italian word called virtu, V-I-R-T-U. So he was trying to do good, but of course sometimes people said, well, he was prepared to use uh, other means. But at the end of the day, what Machiavelli was advocating is what I call strategic common sense. And here, unfortunately, going back to my earlier point about the West having lost some of its uh, capacity for global strategic thinking, I hope a bit of Machiavellianism will make the, the West more careful in thinking where its interests lie. And to give you an example, when I was in Europe last week, uh, I made the point, as you know, the United States, of course, quite naturally, uh, is concerned about the rise of China. And when it sees, for example, China going into Africa, it says, oh my God, the Chinese are expanding, they're getting into American areas of influence. This is terrible. This is bad for the world. And you get all kinds of negative stories. But I told my European friends, I said, geopolitics is a word that was coined for one reason. Because geo stands for geography. And the geography of Europe is different from the geography of North America. And to give you an obvious example, what is Europe's big long-term strategic challenge? Very simple. Its big neighbor, which is Africa. In 1950, right, Europe's population was twice that of Africa's. Today, Africa's population is more than double that of Europe's. By 2100, Africa's population will be 10 times that of Europe. 10 times. So it is in Europe's strategic interest to promote development in Africa that will help to keep the Africans at home and not have the immigrants into Europe, which, as you know, is creating a populist backlash in Europe also. So therefore, what America considers to be a negative thing, 
the spread of Chinese investment in Africa is actually a positive strategic thing for Europe because the economic development of Africa is good for Europe. And this is what I mean by being Machiavellian. You think what your interests are and focus on your interests and get them right. So I hope I've given you sufficient food for thought and he's assured me, Tony, that I'll get some difficult and tough questions from all of you. Thank you very much. Yeah, as usual, <coughs> Kishore has given us a lot uh, to think about. Oh. Anyway, I can go on? <laughs> well, anyway, yes. Kishore has, as usual, given us a lot to uh, think about. Uh, and um, I always remember one comment that Kishore made earlier was uh, when U.S. Uh, was still number one. And I remember you saying, uh, actually, I think it was in the forum here even, and this was in the relationship of, of China, uh, whether it is or isn't a rival. But he said, you know, one thing America should be really conscious of is people watch you and they study your behavior. And in the context of China now becoming a rising power and having a stronger voice, it would be very uh, important for America to think about the way it behaved globally. Because otherwise, these might be considered good lessons for China uh, to take up in the future. And I thought that was a very wise way uh, of looking at it. Unfortunately, it didn't necessarily moderate much of uh, America's behavior. I actually think before Trump, um, you know, under the Bush administration, I think the decisions that it took to uh, invade in the Middle East there, I think already uh, betrayed a sense of America maybe losing what was really and its longer-term strategic interests. And I think the phenomenon of Trump, I agree with you, is related to not thinking wisely about developments such as WTO and, and various other things. But we don't have a lot of time, so I do want to be able to open this up to questions or comments from the floor. Uh, please do use the microphone, uh, because I said this would be recorded, and do make sure your questions end with a question mark, uh, preferably. So... Please, floor is open. Yes. This, this, this reminds me of Singapore. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a while to warm up. There you go. Don't worry. Once so, the price uh, is broken. So when you say that uh, in 2001, uh, America did not give attention to uh, China coming into the WTO, so what do we exactly mean? What should have been done? What should have been uh, done by America? What, what kind of attention do you actually uh, think that should have been given? You don't mind if I stand up, then no, I can, I can see. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the, the obvious thing that the United States should have done is to think about the impact it would have on the American economy, right? And there was a kind of, this is my point about complacency, it was pretty obvious that with China's admission into the WTO and China exports more products, it would obviously have an impact on production around the world, workers would lose their jobs. And as I mentioned, there is an economist, an American economist, if I remember correctly, his name is spelled A-U-T-O-R, who's actually documented all this. And this, this could have been anticipated, this could have been seen coming. But instead of focusing on that, as you know, and you mentioned this in your remarks, Tony, the uh, United States got involved in a, in a, instead in a war in Iraq, a completely unnecessary war. And I can tell you that 
when again future historians looking back at our time will ask themselves the question: Why is it that a time when United States should have been uh, paying attention to China, he decided to invade Iraq, and in the process, by the way, he gave uh, China a free run uh, in the entire decade. And in, in this all this period, while America was distracted in the Middle East, China kept growing, doing very well, and having impact on the uh, American economy, American workers, and so on and so forth. And America didn't pay attention. So that that is the, the point. Of course, it doesn't mean that the United States should do what it's doing now, which is trying to start a, a trade war with China. That's the wrong response to have. Instead, we should work cooperatively with everyone else within the multilateral rules-based framework to find solutions to these issues, and it can be, it can be done. So it was just plain uh, strategic, it would have been plain strategic common sense for the United States to pay attention to China. Thanks very much for your presentation. Yeah, so as Emma talked, you mentioned about the potential division between uh, Europe and the uh, United States. Uh, so uh, what's the implication of that division for the rise of uh, the other powers like China and India? Well, I think, I, I, I would say that, you know, well, you know I, 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 I tried to be, actually, to be honest with you, uh, I tried to be very gentle in my comments with you today, but if you read this book, it's actually much sharper. Because I, I, you know, when you're writing, it's much easier to make sharp points. But one of the sharp points I make in this book is that uh, Europe has been uh, strategically stupid uh, over the last 20 years because it has not paid attention to its own interests. It's become a, a, a sort of very unthinking follower uh, of American policies, which actually have damaged uh, European interests, you know. And you know, the, for example, I mean, just as I said, geopolitics is about geography. The United States has been intervening a lot in the Islamic world. And by the way, I think it's actually very unwise for the United States to do that. You know, you, it's, it's a habit you've developed for maybe 100 years or so to intervene in the world. And you could do that before, but now the backlash is going to be quite significant. And the United States is protected from the backlash from the Islamic world because you have the Atlantic Ocean. 9-11 was an aberration, okay? 9-11 will not happen again. That kind of, it's impossible. It won't happen again. But Europe is right there, geographically, right next to the Islamic world. So Europe will suffer the consequences of American interventionism. So why isn't Europe doing more to moderate America and say, stop intervening? And to give you one example, as you know, recently uh, poor Angela Merkel had a very hard time getting re-elected, and she had a very hard time getting re-elected because of she, she did the right human thing, admitting one million Syrian refugees. Well, how did the Syrian refugees came about? Because of great power conflict uh, in, in, in the Middle East. So my, my, my point to the Europeans, and also in some ways also is advice to Americans is, you have to let these parts of the world grow and succeed on their own. And I know many people in the West believe or the rest of the world can't take care of themselves. But this is why, uh, actually, I was in Harvard just in October last year to launch another book called The ASEAN Miracle. And if you look at ASEAN, if you look at Southeast Asia, Southeast Asia was one of the most troubled parts of the world. 
the biggest war since World War II actually fought in, in Southeast Asia, the Vietnam War, the Sino-Vietnam War. And yet today, Southeast Asia is an oasis of peace. Why? We took care of it ourselves. You are here. So in some ways, the, in some ways, sometimes when you intervene less, you get better uh, results. So my, my advice to the West is basically stop your 19th and 20th century's impulses of thinking that your intervention is going to make the world a better place. Yes. Please go. Ahead. Thank you for your speech. Uh, I have a question. This is regarding like the the title of your book is the Has the West Lost It? Which are the countries? What do you mean by West? So so far as I understood from your speech that you mean America. So can, would you like to kind of explain? Okay, I, I should actually define the West. I guess my definition of the West is the definition that the West uses for itself. Every morning, you pick up the Financial Times, the New York Times, or the Economist, they always say the West, the West, the West. So what do they mean by the West? What they mean by the West is, of course, North America, which is United States and uh, Canada. It means the European Union. It uh, means uh, Australia, New Zealand. That, that's considered part of the Western uh, community. So that, that's the West uh, that I'm speaking about. And you'll notice, for example, quite often the West acts as a single political entity uh, in many areas. And if you go, for example, at the United Nations and you watch how the West votes, they often vote in unison uh, with each other, not on all issues, uh, but on, on, on many issues. And certainly, for example, uh, dealing with Russia, it's both the United States and Europe which were involved in making mistakes uh, in, in the various uh, policies. And, you know, for example, the Germans had uh, given lots of assurance to Russia uh, at, when, the, when the Berlin Wall came down that we will not expand NATO and so on and so forth. Those assurances were forgotten and NATO expanded, alienating Russia, and then you had these problems. So it is not just the United States. I think it is something that both United States, primarily the United States and Europe, uh, have to think about in terms of managing or handling their relations uh, with the rest of the world. So it's not just the United States. Yes, hi. I started your talk about has the West lost it with a no. Uh -huh. Give me your three ends. I'm trying to figure out where is the optimism coming from. Have you uh, seen some actors that are you know, doing the Machiavellian uh, thinking or some strategic thinking that makes it look so optimistic for the West still? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, I, um, it, you know, at the end of the day, what are we trying to achieve with our policies? And to put it very simply, every country's goal is to improve the well-being of its citizens, to keep them at peace, to remove poverty to provide food, shelter, education, health, you name it, right? You know, again, uh, this is the only time in human history where we can now provide all these needs to every human being on planet Earth. And we can do this without having to go to war with one another, right? 
Now, it may have been true. I mean, going, you can go back in the 19th and 20th centuries and argue whether it was necessary for Europe to have colonized the world. Was it necessary for America to intervene in so many countries? But that was their context. And there were, at that time, there was scarcity of resources. There is no scarcity of any resource today. Right? I mean, to take an obvious example, take energy, for example, right? One reason why the Japanese thought they had to invade Southeast Asia is because the United States had an oil embargo on Japan, and therefore they had to go and look for alternative places for resources. It was a zero-sum game. Today, countries don't have to play that zero-sum game. You can, you want, you want, let me assure you, you want to get oil, you want to get uh, wind power, you can get solar power, you can get it all, right? So you, what, what I'm advocating is that each country, when I say minimalist, focus on what you need for yourself. And, for example, to ask, again, there's a very obvious thing. What did the United States gain by invading Iraq? Why did you spend $3 trillion? And one of the most shocking statistics I give in this book is that two-thirds of American families today do not have emergency cash of $500 to deal with an emergency. But then you're building 11 aircraft carrier fleets. Why? Why don't you provide for emergency cash, right? So there are all these games, and, and one of the, this is of course something I hope to develop in a follow-up book, but there is a lot of uh, what I call automatic strategic thinking that is going on, reflecting 19th century premises in the 21st century. And you know, the reason why this book is so important, and this is the point you made, Tony, huh? is that if the United States continues to be so interventionist, it may actually create a pattern that China may follow. So that's why I say be minimalist and, and, and do that. So we are actually objectively, uh, I, I know this sounds crazy, objectively in terms of just measuring human needs and our ability to meet human needs, by 2030, absolute poverty is going to be zero. That's amazing. So let's celebrate that and work together to create a cooperative framework. Right? And, and, and it can be done. But you've got to have a major change in strategic thinking to achieve that. I think your observation is so accurate. You know, that for the past 15 years, the U.S. has been really focused on the Middle East. Mm -hmm while China has been expanding economically and politically and regionally. Mm -hmm. my, my question is, how do you see now the focus on Russia that we're starting to see with the U.S.? Is this another kind of shifting from one uh, focus to another while thus freeing China for another 15 years of a run? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I, I, I would say that, you know, normally, I mean, when you consider the... Uh, Let's say if you had a Brzezinski or Henry Kissinger, and you ask them what's the major strategic challenge for the United States today, clearly the big major strategic challenge is dealing with the rise of China, right? 
And if that's the case, then you should be focusing on how you manage China. But again, people will be puzzled, why is it you're getting involved in problems with Russia? And I can tell you, obviously, that every time the United States gets distracted, it's actually giving China a geopolitical gift, right? And in the long run, I mean, this actually do say this in the book, if you are a Russian strategic planner, what do you worry about? You worry about the rise of China and how you manage it, right? So I'm sure that Russia would prefer to work together with the West to manage a China that's going to become very powerful. It doesn't, it doesn't mean it cannot be managed. It can be managed. But instead of giving Russia the opportunity to cooperate with the West, you've alienated Russia through the expansion of NATO. And, and then by so doing, you've created a world where you know Russians are, are also antagonistic uh, towards you. And so that, this, this need not have happened. This alienation of Russia need not have happened at all. Right? It's part of the strategic mistakes uh, that the West made uh, over the last 20 years since the end of the Cold War. I think uh, I wanted to comment on also a question on what you said uh, about uh, America's intervention. So in hindsight, it looks that way, but one of the main reasons for American intervention in the Middle East was to protect oil. And the first Gulf War was basically when Saddam Hussein annexed Kuwait. We had to evict uh, Saddam from there so that the oil market was stabilized. Right now, of course, because of the Shia revolution and all that, America is flush with oil, but that wasn't the case. Mm -hmm. So do you still think that if America hadn't intervened in, during those times, between 92 um, now, then probably the the yeah. world would have changed. Yeah. So that would have done a lot of things, and oil cartels would have been there. Yeah. So what, what about that? Yeah. Well, you're right. You're right. I mean, the uh, in, in the uh, uh, remember, I, I speak about the strategic mistakes since the end of the Cold War. And during the Cold War, there was a big zero-sum game being played within the Soviet Union and United States. I want to emphasize, by the way, China doesn't want to play the same kind of geopolitical zero-sum game that the one that Soviet Union played with the United States. China doesn't see it in that way. But the Soviet Union and the United States were at loggerheads with each other, and the feeling was that if a country switched to Soviet Union, it was a loss for the United States and vice versa. So when Egypt switched from the Soviet bloc to the American bloc, America celebrated and so on and so forth. And you're right, oil was a critical consideration. But it's clear now that America doesn't need the Middle Eastern oil. Right? It doesn't need it. It's got, in fact, America, as you know, is a net oil exporter. And one of the biggest ironies of our time, America is exporting oil to China, uh, in case you didn't know this. Uh, so, so why is America still intervening in the Middle East? How, how does, I ask a very basic question. How does the livelihood of the average American improve as a result of America deploying vessels in, in the Middle East and bombing Middle Eastern countries? Right? Again, why, why, why do that? Right? We may, we, whatever may have made sense in the Cold War doesn't make sense in, in today's world. But the habits of interve intervening are very deep. And so this is why the United States should do a fresh uh, reboot of its strategic thinking and ask whether or not the impulses that you had in the Cold War still apply uh, today. And in some ways, you know, the, uh, 
you know, it's like putting your hand, when you intervene in the Middle East, it's like putting your hand in a hornet's nest. Your hand is going to get stung, right? Obviously. So why, why do it? Right? And I can assure you, for example, that China has no desire to intervene in the Middle East. No, there's no need now, but yeah. there's no need before. That's right. Yes? I'll probably make a fool of myself, but I want to disagree with you. Please, please do, please do. Yeah. The U.S. has intervened in the Middle East since George W. Bush. Obama did not intervene in Syria. Of course, it's too bad for the people in Syria, but Obama did not intervene. Now, we attacked ISIS because people influenced by ISIS have started had murdered Americans. The United States has not had signed a peace treaty with Iran for to, to eliminate nuclear weapons, which is a good idea generally. Uh, the U.S. is allied with Saudi Arabia. They're giving them support for Yemen, but they're not intervening. I think what we're seeing is the aftershocks of what was significant American and British intervention in the Middle East for oil, starting with the overthrow of Iran, the Iranian president who was uh, democratically elected in the 50s. And then we get the revolution in the 70s, and that's not good for the US, but that's an aftershock of an intervention in the 50s. I think it, with Obama, US tried very much to stop intervening in the Middle East. We didn't intervene. You know, we, we lost our cool a bit with Libya, and we prevented Gaddafi from murdering 50,000 Libyans. And Libya then fell apart, but the U.S. Did, never put troops there. So I really think the U.S. is trying to stop intervening in the mm -hmm. Middle East, but is having to live with the aftershocks mm -hmm. of previous intervention and colonialism. Mm -hmm. My comment. Yeah, no, that's a good comment. And I, and I would certainly agree with you that the issues in the Middle East are often more complicated than they seem to be. But just going back to your earlier comment about uh, President George H.W. Bush's uh, intervention after the Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, let me hold that up as what I call uh, uh, a, a good example of how intervention should take place, which is what George H.W. Bush did, as you know, was to send envoys to 100, over 100 countries and he got over 100 countries to support uh, and participate in the invasion of Kuwait. And so the whole world took responsibility for that. And I thought that after George H.W. Bush did that successfully, that would be a model of how the United States should intervene uh, in, in the Middle East, get everybody involved, and not just make it, don't make it a Western intervention, make it a global inter intervention. That's what Obama did in Libya, right? He got support from the European countries. But I think the key word is Western intervention or global intervention. And Libya was a Western intervention. It wasn't a global intervention. And, you know, one of the most provocative lines I have in this book, when you say that the United States didn't intervene in Syria, that the Obama, in, uh, as you know, uh, administration, as you said, did not intervene in Syria, one of the most explosive lines I have in this book, and this is from a first-hand source, is that during the Obama administration, the United States flew in ISIS fighters from Afghanistan into Syria to fight Assad. And a very senior official in the Obama administration was asked, aren't you repeating the same mistake you made by creating the Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan? I said Al-Qaeda, as you know, was a creation or the CIA, I mean, this is well documented now by Steve Cole and others. So aren't you making the same mistake? And this senior Obama administration official, whom I, without name, of course, in this book, my quote, says, oh, that's a, 
that's a secondary problem. First, let's use ISIS to get rid of Assad. And this is, this is what I call this kind of unnecessary intervention, playing with fire that gets you into a lot of trouble. And, 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 and that's why I think it's actually wiser for the United States. And, and, and I'm not saying, okay, you're right, the, the Libyan case was a terrible thing, but then make it like, like George H.W. Bush did with the uh, uh, Iraqi invasion, make it a global thing, get everybody involved. Then you get a very different picture of, of, of how to intervene. Sorry, was there, did you have a, yes, please. Um, I think that the idea of like minimalism versus multilateralism is kind of contradictory. Um, so the U.S. doesn't really want to submit, like subject itself to like U.N. inspectors coming into Guantanamo Bay or, um, you know, deal with the WTO ruling on a trade dispute. So it doesn't seem like the U.S. feels like it's in it its interest to submit to global governance. So how do you see the U.S. would use multilateralism for its interests um, and still protect its sovereignty? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question. And in fact, uh, what I have in this book uh, is a quote from a very wise uh, former president of the uh, United States of America, Bill Clinton. And I think what he says, I, I'd, like, I'd like to read out what he said in 2003 in a speech in Yale, because he explains why uh, strengthening multilateralism is in America's national interest. He's the best person to have explained it. This is what he said in the speech, yeah? and I quote, If you believe that maintaining power and control and absolute freedom of movement and sovereignty is important to your country's future, important to America's future, there's nothing inconsistent in America continuing to behave unilaterally. America is the biggest, most powerful country in the world now. We've got the juice, and we're going to use it. Then he added a but. He said, but if you believe that we should be trying to create a world with rules and partnerships and habits of, be habits of behavior that we would like to live in, that we would, when, that we live in, when we are no longer the military, political, economic, civil power in the world, then you wouldn't do that. It just depends on what you believe. So what Bill Clinton is saying is that if you think you're going to be number one forever, then you can continue being unilateral. But if America can conceive of a world in which it is no longer number one, then surely it is in America's national interest to create multilateral rules and processes that would then constrain the next number one, which would be China. So that's how it is in America's national interest uh, to strengthen uh, uh, multilateralism. But the biggest problem I find speaking in the United States of America is that it is, as you know, politically taboo for any American politician to speak about America becoming number two. It's political suicide. Uh, and, I, and I know this because, you know, I chaired a forum in Davos five years ago on the future of American power. It was a very high-powered panel. You had two American senators, Corker and Chambers. I think you had a New York congresswoman, Nita Lowry, and you had uh, Mike Froman, then uh, U.S. Uh, Deputy National Security Advisor. And I asked these four very, very distinguished Americans, I said, what do you see as the future of American power? They said, oh, we'll be number one, we'll be number one, we'll be number one. 
said, okay. Okay, I agree. But I said, ah, I've seen some data that says maybe 10 years from now, you may no longer be number one. So what, what, what's going to happen then? And actually, the responses genuinely shocked me because it became very clear that no American politician in office can have any words coming out of their mouth saying, when America becomes number two, if America becomes number two. But the smartest guy was Senator Corker. Uh, he said to me, Mr. Chairman, uh, I can do the maths. I can see where you're taking us. I'm not going there. <laughs> I thought that was a brilliant response to say, yes, yes, I know what you're talking about, but it's suicide for any American politician to talk of America becoming number two. Now, I, I'll tell you one thing, by the way. I'll take bets with any of you. That in, you know, in PPP terms, China is really the number one economic superpower. In nominal terms, China will become the number one, I mean, the country with the largest GNP in 10 years. You can't stop it. It's going to happen. So you can't stop it. And it's going to happen, but you can't speak about it. And people say, how do you prepare for it? How do you prepare for a world in which you're going to become number two? So what Bill Clinton is saying is a point I strongly endorse, that the best way that America prepares for that world when it becomes number two is to create a stronger multilateral order that will then constrain the next number one, which is China. So yeah, that's I think, why. I mean, this is also it plays into what Joe Nye often talks about, yeah. he, where he talks about it as a three-dimensional chess game, hmm. in the sense that probably the U.S. for the foreseeable future will remain number one hmm. in military hard power. Yeah. But as you look at other dimensions, hmm. as you say, you need the multilateralism, you need hmm. comparisons, economics maybe in hmm. total terms not. We're getting near the end, so I want to abuse my position to ask yeah. you one final question. And that really is <coughs> what you've dwelled on a lot, uh, setting uh, framework structures to think about <coughs> who might be the next number one. Mm. And then my question is whether you do believe that China might follow your three M's. And the reason I ask it is that historically, that has not been the way China operates. I mean... When it had power, it saw itself as an empire, and everybody had to be in obedience to China and pay tribute to China, including across Southeast Asia. And for a long time, it, well, and it's part of a global revolution with the Soviets that's meant to overthrow world capitalism. It still talks about Marxism, Leninism. And for a while, it said we do not interfere in the internal interests of other countries. But given now its power, the size of its economy, it has an alternative but to become engaged in domestic politics, which I'm not saying is in the same way as the U.S. has been in the past. So my question to you is how confident are you mm. that China would abide by your three M's mm. as it does become more influential? Well, yeah, that, that, that's, a, that's a great question. And as you know, that's exactly why I'm using my sabbatical this year to write a book on U.S.-China relations to answer, precisely, to answer precisely this question. What, what kind of world are we going to have when China becomes number one? And the reason why, actually, I want to write this book now, I actually believe that we have a 10-year window of opportunity to influence China before it becomes number one. Because once you become number one, what happens is that people naturally 
begin to behave as the most powerful actor in the room. And you know, uh, one of the, as you know, Graham Allison has written a book uh, called Destined for War, about within U.S. and China. And one of the one of the most uh, powerful passages in, in in Graham Allison's book is, you know, he said Americans often wish that China, China that Chinese would behave like us. He said, be careful what you wish for. Because when America became number one at the end of the 19th century, it exploded and intervened in so many countries all of a sudden when it became number one. So he said, don't, please don't ask the Chinese to behave like Americans when they became number one. <laughs> so therefore, this is the moment to influence China. And, and the Chinese, I can say, uh, are going through a lot of deep reflection on what kind of world they want to see when they become uh, number one. And I think right now, China has emerged as the number one beneficiary of many aspects of the rules-based order. For example, China is the number one trading power in the world, which is in some ways, again, future historians will see this very clearly. Why is the U.S. Navy spending so much money to preserve freedom of navigation so that Chinese exports can go around the world? <laughs> It's strange, but that's a gift from the U.S. Navy to China, Chinese accepted. You know. uh, but in the same way, the Chinese are actually going to ask themselves fairly fundamental questions like, do we need to have a global navy? Right now, they don't have one. Right? They don't have 11 aircraft carriers. Should, should China have 11 aircraft carriers? So, but then it depends on how you treat them as they're rising. And one of the things I always say is that America should be careful about carrying out aggressive naval patrolling 12 miles off China's shores because you're setting a pattern of behavior that the Chinese will replicate 20 years down the road. There'll be aggressive Chinese naval patrolling 12 miles off America's shores. Why, why do that? So in a sense, how we treat China, how we behave towards China in the next 10 years is very critical. And, and I, I actually hope that America would lead the way by strengthening this multilateral rules-based order. And of course, the Chinese are violating some rules. There's no doubt. I mean, the Chinese are not saints, right? They're also like everybody else. I violate rules. You violate rules. We all violate rules. But then how do you handle China when it violates rules? And, and, and there are actually mechanisms for doing so. And one of them is the World Trade Organization. And many of the Chi American complaints about China in trade are legitimate complaints. And these complaints would have been uh, supported by the World Trade Organization. But instead of going to the World Trade Organization, you decide to do it unilaterally. And by doing it unilaterally, you don't get the support uh, of the world. So that's why I say, what, how, my, so my, my short answer to your question, how China will behave when it becomes number one depends on whether or not we, how, how we treat China in the next 10 years. Great. I'm so sorry we're out of time, but please join me. Thank you. You've been listening to AshCast, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovations podcast. If you'd like to learn more, please visit ash.harvard.edu or follow the Ash Center on social media at Harvard Ash.